yeah, like we're not designed to cope. Right now we're getting news and most of it is bad news. We're not designed to be sort of in chronic low grade state of being overwhelmed all the time. Instead, we're designed to have bouts of extreme stress where you're running for your life so you don't become somebody's lunch or you're running as fast as you can to capture your own lunch and then it should be over in a few minutes. You're listening to Masterminds, where I sit down with experts in medicine and technology to learn about their insights into everything from the scientific research of today to the innovation of tomorrow. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Pankaj Vij, wellness physician, speaker, and author of the book Turbo Metabolism. Dr. Vij is passionate about preventing and reversing metabolic diseases by treating their root causes. He's a director of the Lifestyle Medicine Global Alliance and the chief architect of Crack the Wellness Code, a global community platform for health promotion. Personally, I'm interested in his extremely successful, holistic approach to medicine. So probably in the last decade or so, after I had a realization that you know, much of what we do in conventional medicine is just managing diseases, and but we're not really fixing anything or making people really, you know, really curing them <clears throat> and enhancing their health. A lot of times, so every time I would see someone as their primary physician, I'm just adding more medicine or saying, okay, yeah, good, 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 continue with the same and your blood test looks fine. But to me, that's not really in improving anybody's life if you're just managing a disease and, and just, and over time, they will get thicker and thicker and you're adding more medicine. And then I had a close family member that got really sick and I really started wondering, what are the causes? You know, instead of treating the symptoms, what if we really thought about what are the root causes and focus on that? When you actually attack it at the level of the root causes, you can, in many cases, reverse disease. And you can certainly prevent it, you can certainly treat it, but in many cases you can reverse or cure disease. And that was so exciting. And that, so that's really become my passion and my focus, uh, I would say at least the last 10 years. Lifestyle medicine deals with the prevention and treatment of disorders by altering your lifestyle choices. This is in stark contrast to the way a conventional hospital operates, which is, for the most part, reactive. In this episode, you'll hear Dr. Vidge talk a lot about evolution, which informs us about the body's natural state and allows us to optimize its strengths to fight illness. Take diabetes, for example. In the United States, diabetes affects 34.2 million people. The majority of diabetes that we see is type 2 diabetes, and it's really sad that we used to think that uh, type 2 diabetes was the diabetes of the mature, of you know, older people who are generally overweight. And we used to talk about type 1 diabetes as diabe juvenile diabetes, which occurred in young people. And the sad thing that's happened is that with the widespread obesity epidemic, across the board, about 90% of diabetes is type 2 diabetes. So, which means when you say the word diabetes, you're generally referring to type 2. But the good news is that 
because it's a lifestyle disease, it's largely preventable and treatable with lifestyle, with the appropriate lifestyle choices. We can not only prevent it, but in many cases we can treat and reverse it too. And that's what gets me up every morning. That is what's so exciting about the work that I'm doing with lifestyle is that we can actually make people better. And that's what I love about my job. So it's over 80% of disease and health is related to lifestyle choices. And it boils down to you know, really a handful of things, right? The big, biggest one is eating habits. The food that you're eating is the most profound way in which you interact with the environment. Number two would be exercise. The body is made to move and be active and mobile and not, we're not designed to be sedentary. <clears throat> Number three is stress. We're not designed to be sort of in chronic, low-grade state of being overwhelmed all the time. Instead, we're designed to have bouts of extreme stress where you're running for your life so you don't become somebody's lunch or you're running as fast as you can to capture your own lunch. And then it should be over in a few minutes, one way or another. And sleep. So we're not sleeping the amount of time or getting the quality of sleep that we're designed, again, because of all the environmental incursions on that. And the fifth would be habits, right? And if we think about lifestyle habits, the two biggest ones that jump to mind are smoking, which is probably by far the number one cause of preventable death and disability still. And, you know, your legal addictions like alcohol and going back to the diet stuff too, legal addictions to sugar and salt and oil. According to Dr. Vidge, lifestyle medicine can be summed up in six words. Feet, forks, and fingers, and sleep, stress, and love. Feet being exercise, forks being eating habits, fingers being unhealthy habits like smoking, sleep and stress being pretty self-explanatory, and love being our social connections, I couldn't have given this episode a better title myself. For the sake of time, we didn't go too deep into all six planks, but we do cover the main ones. So with that six-word mantra under our belt, we started talking about the first component to living your best life, feet, or exercise. A lot of Dr. Vidge's work centers around the concept of metabolism and how to best optimize it. To the general population, metabolism is associated with weight loss, and though the breaking down of fat molecules is one component of it, there's a lot more to the story. Scientifically, metabolism is the sum of all the life-sustaining chemical reactions that occur within the cells of an organism. These reactions include the breaking down of glucose into energy, the synthesis of necessary organic compounds, and the elimination of waste. I mean, the common thing that everybody, I hear all the time, everybody says, oh, I have slow metabolism or I have bad metabolism and I have, you know, I'm not able to process food or I, you know, smell water and I get fat. And the reality is this just doesn't work like that. The, in the vast majority of people that have uh, trouble with their weight, the issue is not that they were born with, you know, a certain kind of metabolism. It's that's probably one or two percent, certainly under five percent of obesity is due to genetic causes. The other 95% is lifestyle. As far as changing your metabolism, the number one thing that you can do, there are others, but the number one thing would be to build lean muscle. 
because lean muscle is your fat burning plant it's a furnace the more mitochondria you have the more mitochondria are like fat burning furnaces and the more they're more concentrated in lean muscle so if we can build lean muscle by doing weight bearing exercises and have strong muscles they don't have to be huge but if they're active strong muscles that we are activating by just by moving our own body in space under gravity we are building those muscles and getting them stronger so that these muscles can then act as our best friend and be burning fat be burning calories and even when we rest even when we're sitting studying for an exam or doing a sedentary job for work sitting 8 9 10 hours a day watching television even when we're sleeping so the the more lean muscle you have the faster your body is going to burn the excess the uh, calories especially fat which is the most calorie dense form of food there is uh, the fastest that's going to be burned if you have more lean muscle so lean muscle is your best friend but most people don't think about that or don't want to work on that and they're thinking about it in a very uh, oversimplified calculus of calories in calories out if i decrease my calorie intake i'll automatically become thin but the answer is that your metabolism will also slow down because your body is perceiving that you're in a state of starvation you're in a state of stress there's something very um crit- critical life threatening going on in your environment and it wants to preserve life keep you alive and so what it will do is switch off and slow down so you're not going to get the result that you want because you you know instead of working with nature you think that you can outsmart it and that usually doesn't end up well the biggest thing that people don't know is that it is something that's modifiable it is absolutely related to your lifestyle there are things about it that you can't change like your height or your gender or your age those are the things that are the biggest determinants of your metabolism but the other one is your lean muscle mass which you can absolutely change and it's interesting that it's sort of a you know it's sort of a virtuous cycle in that the more you work on changing the ratio of lean muscle to fat the easier it becomes for you to lose even more fat so all you have to do is sort of start that snowball and you make an effort and get things moving and then the body's there to help you nature is there to help you the universe is working to help you succeed in whatever you're trying to do you just have to take those first few steps and make your effort you do your part of the deal and nature takes care of the rest Dr. Vidge has a profound understanding of how the body works outside of conventional medicine. The more he talked, the more I realized the need for wellness advocacy in our own communities. People and governments spend millions on healthcare and medicine and treatment to chronic illnesses while focusing not enough energy on their prevention. But don't even get me started on the allocation of healthcare money in this country. That is a whole other episode. Let's talk about the second plank of the key to a healthy lifestyle, forks or food. Well, uh, my approach is always to go back to evolutionary biology and look at how we have evolved as a species and um fasting is the way that we, you know, have survived because simply because there wasn't really a lot of access to calorie dense foods. all the time like we have now and 
So I mean, however, whatever you want to call it, the idea is that you know we shouldn't be eating as much food, as many calories as we are eating, and instead we should be focusing on eating high-quality food, which is not as calorie dense, and that's how we can reverse disease. So whether you call it, you know, time-restricted eating or fasting or simply eating to really nourish your body, thinking about food as medicine, to me, it's all the same thing. is that you want to eat to live not live to eat you know you go back to evolution and the majority of our ancestors have eaten a largely of plant based diet of unprocessed plants probably more out of necessity than out of you know watching television or reading in a magazine that they should be eating that way it's just that it's much much easier to capture you know some sort of uh vegetables that are that don't tend to run away from us than to capture an animal and to kill it so i would argue that our ancestors were gatherer hunters rather than hunter gatherers and they would be much more likely to find a plant food to eat and you look at uh you know the predatory species of carnivores they have sharp sense of smell they have very long canine teeth they have night vision because they can prey on their uh food at night they have a sharp keen sense of hearing right bears can smell miles away same thing for your cat even at home that can you know sense and see things in the pitch dark and go hunt for an animal and we are just not designed that way working with people that are really sick it does seem like a diet that's exclusively plant-based does work better. Animal foods tend to be higher in cholesterol, they tend to be higher in fat, they tend to be higher in um nitrites and oxidizing agents that will induce cancer producing genes. So they have this epigenetic effect. Uh they contribute to insulin resistance, which is the basis of type 2 diabetes. and the list goes on and on and on there's so many cancers that are linked because the higher you're eating up the food chain if you're eating an animal you're essentially you're eating everything that the animal ate so there's biomagnification of toxins so you're eating uh you know a, a fish that's eaten smaller fish that's eaten even smaller fish that's feeding on plastic and mercury that we're dumping into the ocean guess what all that pollutant all those toxins got biomagnified and you're having it in a much higher concentration now because you're this animal that you're eating essentially acted as a concentration mechanism for all of those toxins. Evolutionarily, the evidence seems to indicate that humans are largely herbivorous. While we do consider ourselves omnivores, our anatomy simply points the other way. The hunter part of the term hunter-gatherers that we coined to describe our prehistoric nomadic ancestors was largely based on a curious desire for meat rather than a necessity. Even then, we still had to fashion spears to help us out. Dr. Vidge, though, has a particularly strong opinion about vegetarianism. From an ethical and environmental reason, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, even if you look at diseases that belong to animals, and animals would be able to handle them and get better but when we keep hundreds or thousands of millions of birds in a confined area for the purpose of mass production for our consumption that's when we get into trouble and we get animal diseases that we don't our bodies 
aren't familiar with, and therefore we don't have the defenses to fight them. To all my fellow meat eaters, I want to be clear that this isn't an attack on us. Medically, a plant-based diet seems to be the most effective, but ethically, everyone is entitled to their own opinions. The most important thing is to be conscious about what and how much you're putting into your body and having those difficult conversations with yourself. If you come out the other side vegetarian or vegan, good for you. And if you're like me and know that for the life of you can't give up butter chicken, so be it. Or maybe you'll end up living by Dr. Vidge's rule about eating meat. Cavemen were eating some animals, but they were killing those animals themselves. They weren't being mass produced where you can buy them really cheap. So if you want to eat some meat, make sure that you killed it yourself with your two hands and you can eat it. When we started talking about the fourth plank, stress, that's when I could really relate to what Dr. Vidge was saying. Whether we're constantly feeling it or not, even the institutions of college and school and jobs are factors of stress that our animal ancestors didn't have to deal with. But let's start off with the science behind stress. There are tons of science behind, behind stress, and we could start off with how do you first define stress? And you know, some of the first people that started working on it were scientists like Hans Selye, um, who took it from a very physical model of things, like you can stress a piece of metal or a brick by putting force on it in excess of what it's designed to withstand, and you get degeneration, you get cracks, you get the material to break down. And uh, so they took that sort of definition and expanded it into biological stress. And we could say that when the physical, mental, or psychological demands on the organism exceed its capacity to cope with them, we call that stress. Now, some people argue that there's, there's good stress when you need a little bit of pressure, you need you know, something to motivate you, you need to have an exam or a book deadline or something to, that you're working on, and that's a good kind of stress. We're not talking about that. We're talking about distress or bad stress, which is essentially a state of overwhelm. And we have a system to cope with it. We have our adrenaline that kicks in if you suddenly you know, step outside and you step on your garden hose, but you think for a second that it's a snake, and all of a sudden your heart races, your blood pressure goes up, you might break out in a sweat, your pupils will dilate, your eyes get big, your hair stands up, and those are all physiological. It's very much designed for you to, at that point, be able to get away from that snake. I don't think there's very many of us who will try to fight the snake, but that's the fight or flight response. But those systems work well for short bouts of life-threatening danger that we can quickly deal with and get over. But it doesn't work so well when it's just a continual stress of deadline after deadline or social issues like racism and um, inequality and injustice in society. Those are those can be sort of chronic, gnawing stressors without a good, easy resolution. And those are the things that cause more long-standing damage to health. 
Professor Robert Sapolsky at Stanford University has dedicated over three decades of his life to studying the physiological effects of stress on wild African baboons. Baboons, like humans, aren't faced with daily, life-threatening dangers. Rather, they are emotionally complex enough and have enough time on their hands to create social stressors for themselves and those around them. Sapolsky found that due to their elevated stress levels compared to other animals, baboons faced elevated blood pressure levels and weakened immune and anxiety responses. This is very similar in humans. A continual release of stress hormones over time have proven to increase the risk of diabetes, gastrointestinal disorders, heart disease, and even memory impairment. Do you think that we've too quickly created a lifestyle that our bodies have physically not evolved to support? Yeah, like we're not designed to cope, right? So we're, we're we, over 7 million years of evolution, right? When a human would get news about a flood, it would be a very real thing because the flood is in the village next door and it's about to hit my village, right? Now we're getting news and most of it is bad news. You know, we have a 24-7 news cycle. Everybody's connected. We're constantly being bombarded with stuff that most of the time we can't really do anything about except feel bad about it. So now the question is, how can we limit our stress to healthy doses? Turns out, humanity isn't doomed. The key? We just need to relax. Don't take life too seriously. Most importantly, don't isolate yourself. Dr. Sapolsky's studies show that protection from stress-related disorders is most significantly rooted in social connectedness. Form valuable relationships with people who bring you joy and with whom you can de-stress with. Last spring, I had the pleasure of watching Dr. Vidge's rehearsal for the TED speech he was supposed to give at my high school. Unfortunately, it wasn't able to happen when school shut down, but I asked him to retell his intro for us today, giving me one final insight into how we can go about reducing stress in the moment. He uses a simple metaphor with the monkey and a coconut. So the story was about how they trap monkeys and the traditional monkey trap that have been used in lots of South Asia and Southeast Asia is where they'll empty out a coconut and make a hole in it, and they have a treat on the other side, uh, on the inside of the coconut. So it's a half coconut, it's like a hemisphere that's hollowed out. And it has, so the monkey puts his hand inside the hole to grab the treat, whatever it is, a banana or, or some bright shiny object, and it grabs it. And it doesn't realize that as long as it's keeping its fist tight, it's not gonna be able to come out of that hole. And, but the monkey doesn't let go, and monkey after monkey has been trapped in that way. Whereas all that it needed to do was at that moment to let go, to unfocus on that banana and release it. The minute you release, your hand comes out and you're able to run away. A lot of times, the way to get what you want is not necessarily the focus really hard, but also to know when to unfocus. And I've seen that so many times, you know, we're, we're not able to get the results that we want because we're trying too hard. Ironic as that sounds, it's like you're so focused on whatever that tiny little prize is in front of you that you're missing the big picture, and which is keeping you from getting the much bigger result 
that you really want. If we can learn how to rest and relax and relate to other people, we can actually get everything that we want. Dr. Vidge's evolutionary perspective on life and wellness really opened my eyes to a different aspect of medicine. The decisions we make on a daily basis are far greater determinants of diseases we're at risk for than we think. Proper nutrition alone reduces hospital readmissions by over 50%, which saves hospitals around $17,000 per patient and significantly decreases the likelihood of patients contracting infections while they're there. Yes, American healthcare needs to place a greater emphasis on whole person care, and yes, it needs to preach proper nutrition and exercise to combat illness at its roots. But at the end of the day, there's only so much that a hospital can do for you. Feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love is the recipe for living your best life, and it's high time that we take it upon ourselves to see it through.